This is the third week of Advent, and so we've today we've come to the uh, the third of four names for Jesus, which we are examining from Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. And so, just as a refresher, let me let me give a brief recap regarding the. The context for that passage and and those first two names that we've discussed already, Uh, we've talked about how uh, in the first portion of the book of Isaiah, God speaks to his people regarding the imminent uh, invasion by the Assyrians. They're coming into that region of the the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, That invasion was coming due to their constant rejection of God, their, their consistent breaking of the covenant that they had made with God. But while that invasion would offer, uh, uh, would usher in a time of thick darkness, as Isaiah says at the end of chapter 8, there's hope. There's hope in the midst of that. There, there is hope that light will come out of that darkness, specifically in the form of a son to be born. But as we see in chapter 9, verse 6, it's not just any old son. His uniqueness and, and his immensity are, are communicated through those four names given to us in that verse. And so we talked already about the first name, Wonderful Counselor. The Savior to be born is wonderful, right? We, we, we talked about that. His, his works of creation are wonderful. His works within history are wonderful. Uh, his incarnation that we focus on during this season. They're, they're all things that fill us with wonder. They're, they're unmatched by anyone or anything else. So he's wonderful, and, and, and because he's wonderful, this son is worthy and he's qualified to be our counselor. Due to the sin in our lives, due to our own limited perspective, and, and just due to the greatness of his wisdom, the son to be born is the counselor that we need and the counselor that we come to desire the more and more that we know him. So wonderful counselor. And then last week we talked about that second name, mighty God. The, the son that was to be born is fully divine. He is God. He, he's not just the person who's closest to God or understands God the best. He, he is God himself. And this divine Son of God is mighty. He's mighty God, mighty in power. That might, uh, we talked about the different ways that might is seen through creation, through his miracles, through his resurrection, through his defeat of sin, through his salvation in our own individual lives. All of that shows the might of the Son of God. So it's clear that this son who would come out of this time of thick darkness, he's exactly what the people needed. Exactly. And, and we're only halfway through the names. We've got two more to go yet, but already this is exactly who God's people needed. And in addition to that, then, as we've observed these first two weeks, this son isn't just who God's people needed then, but it's who God's people need now. It's who we need now as well in our rebellion and in our suffering and in our uncertainty. We too are blessed by a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. 
And as we're going to see today then, both the people of Israel then and us today are blessed by this son who is called by that third name, Everlasting Father. Now, I, I, I decided I'm just going to apologize right off the bat this morning. We get to talk about two topics that I think are two of the toughest for us as finite humans to understand. The Trinity and the concept of time, eternity. We get both of those <laughs> this morning in this, in this name. You know, I don't, I don't know if there's anything that can scramble our brains quite like those two. And, and lucky us, they're both going to come up this morning. So, so if you need an extra sip of coffee to get ready for that, take it. Now's your, now's your chance because we're going to dive right in. We'll, we'll begin by talking about First, how, how this son to be born is called everlasting father. Father. Or, or knowing that, uh, I mean, you think about that, right? This is a son, a child to be born, son of God. How can he be called father? And knowing that that son to be born is Jesus, as we can look back on that, we might wonder why he's called father when Jesus is the son of God. Right? He's God the Son. He's not God the Father. How can Isaiah refer to him as everlasting Father? And, and so to answer that question, yeah, we've got a little graphic up here that maybe you've seen something like this before. We need to do some work in, in Trinitarian theology this morning. This graphic's not going to answer all your questions, just so you know. I, I think maybe it just helps us visualize the complexity <laughs> of the Trinity in a way. But as you can see right in the middle, of that uh, diagram is God. And then moving outward from the center at the three points of that triangle, we've got the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And connecting those points with the middle is the word is. So God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. And if that's all that there was to it, then we might stand a chance of wrapping our heads around the Trinity, maybe. But that's not all. The curved portions on the outside, they, they help us understand that, that uh, each person of the Trinity, while being fully God, is distinct from the other two persons. So, so God the Father is not God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is not God the Father, is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father or God the Son. So, you know, in, in, in terms of, if we think of last week's name, that the Son to be born, it will be called Mighty God, that makes sense, right? Because the Son is God. So I'm, I'm tracking with Isaiah there. Yeah, of course, this is God, the Son to be born, mighty God. But how can Isaiah then turn around and also call the Son to be born everlasting Father? Because the Father is not the Son. God the Father is not God the Son. Are we there yet? Uh, scrambled in our minds, right? <laughs> What we need to kind of get straight as we go through this, when we think about the, the name written by Isaiah here, is that 
the son, when, it, when he says that the son to be born is everlasting father, he's not using the term father in the Trinitarian sense. Okay, so he's not referencing God the Father when he says that the Son is the everlasting Father. Instead, what Isaiah is doing is he's drawing our attention to God's role of fatherhood of his people. Maybe another way to say it, the, the name here doesn't, doesn't reference the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The name references the relationship between God and his people. So that's, who, that's what Isaiah has in mind here. Okay, so because he is God, this son to be born, Jesus, he's the father of the people of God. He's the father of the children of God. And, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean by this. Turn, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, and, and we'll see this language coming out. So I'll start reading uh, in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. And as I'm reading, take, take note of the way in which the relationship between God and his people is described. So Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So Isaiah, the book opens with a, a difficult passage to read, you know, the imagery regarding the people's rebellion is, is, is tough to, to read, but, but did you catch how God referred to his people? Children, offspring, daughter of Zion. God is presenting himself right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah as the father of his people. So I, I think a good question to ask is, why? why? Why is that the picture that God uses? Why, why does God refer to himself as father and, and to his people as children? And I think, you know, we, we might consider the reason that people exist in general, right? When we think about an earthly biological father, he's 50% responsible for the existence of his children. Okay. Now, I know God plays a role in this, obviously, but just looking at the human perspective for now. If the father doesn't play his fatherly role in procreation, there would be no children. He's, he's father because he has fathered children. And, and you can talk about people in that sense in, in regard to God. We can rightly consider that God plays a crucial role in the existence of every human on earth. 
Psalm 139 says God knits us together in our mother's womb. He, he has made us. We owe our very existence to him. But that is true of every person on earth, no matter what they believe about God. Every person who has ever lived could rightly state that God is their father in that way. When God speaks of himself as the father of his people, when he's focusing on that, his people, he's referencing something else. Rather than the creative role of father, what he has in view is his relational roles as father. His roles in which he, he guides, he provides for, he protects his children. God, when God speaks of himself as the father of his people, that's what he's talking about. And, and there, there, there's a powerfully moving picture of God treating his people in that way in Ezekiel chapter 16. I, I would encourage you to turn there with me. In Ezekiel 16, this, this comes out so clearly. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. So, so God's mentioning how how the people of Jerusalem could physically trace their lineage back to the Amorites and the Hittites who inhabited that city for centuries before it was conquered by King David. Those Amorites, those Hittites who intermarried with God's people were literally their biological ancestors, their biological fathers. And yet, as we go on, notice how those fathers are absent at their birth. Look at verse 4. It says, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on, an open, on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So, God's using the metaphor there to remind them that they are people who were abandoned. They, they were relationally fatherless, and, and in their desperate need of a father to provide for them and protect them, what we're going to see is that God stepped in. He took on that role. And, and uh, you know, the, the language gets a little more graphic moving forward, but the kids are all in children's church, so I think we're, we're safe to go this morning. But look at, look at uh, verse 6 with me. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in, in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So the metaphor starts to mix a little bit between both father and husband, but, but the same roles apply to both. God loves his people, and, and so he guides them and provides for them and protects them as a father was expected to do. You know, when you think about that culture, family units looked a little different then than we are used to today. If, if I drive through my neighborhood, um, in most every individual house, there will be an immediate family unit. So one generation, two, if the children are, are still living at home, maybe there's three generations if someone's parents have moved back in or, or the grandkids are there too. So maybe there'd be three, three generations there. But, but even with that being more common today, it, 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 that's still far from the norm. In those days, the family unit existed in what was called the father's house. A father's house, the, the oldest male in the family was the patriarch, and, and he was expected to guide and provide for and protect his family, which included biological descendants, so his sons and daughters and his grandsons and granddaughters, but it also included those welcomed into his family, into his house, and so that would be his wife his sons-in-laws, his daughters-in-law, servants, even strangers that were passing through could be invited into the father's house. And the father was the one who would search for a family member who was lost or wandering. You know, think the parable of the prodigal son that we read earlier. The father was the one who would protect his family from marauders, from enemies. Uh, think of Abraham, who, who went out to rescue his nephew Lot when he was captured. And at that point, that house had already split into two separate houses, but Abraham still fought for and, and fought for his captured nephew to, to bring him back. Um, the father of the father's house was the one who made sure that the physical needs of those in his household were met. So things like food and clothing and shelter and, and education, all those things. So if we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when Isaiah says that the son to be born is a father, he's not referencing procreation. He's speaking of these fatherly roles in the lives of the people. And, and when we think about the context in which those words were spoken, Right, Just like with those first two names, this is exactly what the people needed. The Assyrian army was coming. 
right? The, the, the invasion had been foretold. The people needed this father figure to guide them and protect them and provide for them in the midst of what they were facing. Now, we know how the story turned out. The Assyrians did come and they did attack and they were victorious. They exiled the people. So the, the question might be, well, did, did God fail in his role then? Did he shirk his role since the Assyrians did come and, and show themselves to be victorious? And, and I, would say, I would say, no, that doesn't mean God failed. You know, any parent who's gone through the experience of having a child rebel against them knows the difficulty of, of allowing their child's decisions to be met with consequences, right? So, so even if the people question God's role as their father by him allowing the Assyrians to come in, it doesn't negate God's fatherly love toward them. His, his love for them never wavered one bit. Maybe they wondered if it did, but it didn't. And, it, and it's not just with the Assyrians in that time. We can fast forward to the time when this prophecy was fulfilled, when the sun came into the earth. You, you just replace the Assyrians with the Romans, but the oppression was still there. God's people were still oppressed. Their, their need for this father figure remained. Like I mentioned last week, it, it's no wonder that, uh, that, that the people saw the Messiah who was prophesied as someone who would fulfill this fatherly role by providing protection in the face of enemies, by providing that physical protection, driving them out. And, and, and if the true enemies were the Romans, then the everlasting father could be expected to physically defeat them. But the true enemy wasn't the Romans, right? The true enemy of God's people was something different, sin and Satan and death. And so as the true father figure, Jesus sought after his lost and wandering people, redeeming them for, from their, their slavery and captivity by offering himself as a ransom. That's how he did it. Jesus went out and he paid the price so that his people, so that we, might be brought back into the safety of the Father's house. I mean, we think about the words of Jesus. What, what was his promise to his, to his followers? He said, I go to my Father's house and prepare a place for you. All right, Jesus brings us into the provision and protection that can only be found in the Father's house, the true Father's house. And so I, I would encourage you this morning, if, if you are presently outside of the Father's house, you can know that he's searching for you. That's what the Father does. And his arms are open to you. He's, his, his love for you runs deeper than, than, than you can know. And if you're running away from him presently, then I, my, my encouragement, my urging is to say, stop. Stop running away. It, it's madness outside of the Father's house. Uh, it's lonely. It's painful. It's empty. 
It's uncertain, right? All, all of that is outside of the Father's house, but, but we know that. I mean, we know that from experience. Inside the Father's house is, is provision and protection and uh, boundless love. The son to be born is this father figure who provides for us all that we need. And so for all of us, may we, may we enter into the father's house. He's done what is required for us to enter. He's paid the price, paid the ransom. He's sought after us. Will we walk in? Will we be with him? The son to be born is the everlasting father. But if you think about that old, that the, the culture of the Old Testament, there was always one glaring weakness with that father's house system. And the problem was, even if you had the most benevolent, trustworthy, wise, strong father watching over your family, the day was going to come when that father would no longer be there, where that father would die. And the household would inevitably be thrust into a place of vulnerability because that role of patriarch needed to be transferred from one person to another. That role needed to be taken up by someone else, which ideally would have been the oldest son to step into that. But, but that was the weakness in that system, that even the best father was not eternal, right? That weakness doesn't exist in our father's house, because our father is everlasting, as Isaiah writes. He is eternal, with no beginning and no end. You know, when I was a kid, and even sometimes still as an adult, I, I found it fun to try to comprehend eternity. And I know I wouldn't ever get close, but to try to just wrap my brain around that just a little bit, and I, I would think about some aspect of eternity, and then, and then try to think about the implications of it, and, and think about how it, it never ends, and it's always ongoing, and then there would, there would, I, you would get to that moment where my brain would just kind of freeze, like, it, have you ever been there, right, and it's just like, like when a computer freezes, maybe, I don't know, there's just, you can't quite compute it, but, you know, and then, and then I would have to kind of come back to temporal reality, and then, and then my brain functions again. I, I don't think I'm probably the only one that's done that, but man, I, and you think about Christmas time, right? At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, which took place in a specific year, in a specific month, on a specific day, at a specific hour, and specific minute, and specific second, but it's still the birth of the everlasting, the eternal father who was born to Mary and Joseph. Jesus had a birthday as the son of Mary and Joseph, and yet he, he has always existed from eternity past as the son of God, who is the father of his people. I mean, here we go scrambling our brains again right, to try to comprehend that reality. 
You know, John speaks about this truth and, and, and does his best to capture it in a couple different places. So at the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, he says it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, he's talking about Jesus there. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. And yet, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that all happened at a specific point in history. And, and as a further statement about the eternal breaking into the temporal, we can, we can read the first verses of 1 John. So in 1 John chapter 1, he writes this. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we, have, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So the Son of God has existed from the beginning, and, and, and the beginning spoken of is not, it's not the beginning of God, it's the beginning of the universe, right? The beginning of creation, beginning of recorded, not recorded history, but the beginning of history, right? God himself doesn't have a beginning. He, he existed when time first began, when the physical laws were, were put into place upon which creation was built, God was there as the author of those laws. So we can't go back to a time when he wasn't. We can go back to a time when there wasn't anything in terms of creation, but there was still God. He's eternal. So that means the Son of God stands over his creation. He stands above all of his creation. He stands over and above time, which is a part of his creation. The, the power right, that we talked about last week, the power possessed by the eternal Son of God is power not equal to anywhere else within creation. But, but that's all eternity past, right? For all the focus on eternity past, we, we also have to remember that, that eternity goes on forever the other way, right? Into the future. So the, the everlasting Father who was present and active at the beginning of creation and who, who has always existed will continue to be so forever. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we can think about a time, picture in your mind a time where you came across a building or, or uh, a piece of equipment of some kind which was old and in disrepair. And, and it was obvious that, that this thing had seen better days, that it, was, that it was maybe once useful and now it's not quite so much anymore. I mean, doesn't, isn't there part of you that just kind of wonders about the former glory that it used to possess? Maybe you've, maybe you've said the statement, oh, I wish I could have seen this town in its heyday, or I wish I could have seen this piece of equipment, you know, being used it was, as it was created to be. As I was thinking about that, Something recently that I came across, uh, when we were down in uh, Kentucky during October doing work after the flood, uh, we came across 
the old school building where I'm pretty sure Evie Zoss grew up going to school. Can you put that up, um, Patty? Uh, am, am I right on this, guys? This is where everyone's school? Okay, good. I was hoping. I'm <laughs> pretty sure. Uh, you know, uh, um, this is a professional picture taken of that uh, building. And the picture, honestly, probably makes it look better than it is currently. I'm sure the picture's been edited um, and uh, the flood this past summer took place after that picture was taken. So, so, so things are worse for that building than, than it might look in the picture. But wouldn't it have been fascinating to, to walk through that old school if we were able to? And, and, and it wouldn't have been fascinating to kind of see it when it was first constructed, when it was being used as it was intended to be. You know, there's, there, there's kind of a, a fading grandeur to that building. Um, and, and where I came across that picture online, so many people were like, oh, that should be purchased and, and this, do this with it or do that with it. I mean, there's, there's something within a person that just says, man, there, there used to be something there and wouldn't it be great if there was once again. You know, the, there's, there's decay that has set in, right? When we think about the everlasting father, that, that's not the case. Thing, it's not that the father used to be stable and used to be impressive, but, but decay has set in. No, no, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only is he eternal, he himself eternal, but his character is eternal. His power is eternal. His love is eternal. Everything about him is eternal. And, and that, that's why the writer of Hebrews also quotes God's words to Joshua when he says that he'll never leave him nor forsake him. You can say that about an everlasting father. I can tell those words to somebody. I, I as Aaron, can say, I, I'm not ever going to leave you. I'm not ever going to forsake you. And I can mean it, but there's no guarantee in that, right? Things in my control or outside of my control, there's no guarantee in it. But when the everlasting Father says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that's ironclad. I mean, we can trust in Jesus, the everlasting Father, because he is eternal and he's unchanging. He'll, he'll, he'll guide us, he'll provide for us, he'll protect us, when we're seven years old and when we're 97 years old. And, you know, and it doesn't matter if, if we are the Israelites in Isaiah's time or if we are the Jews in Paul's time or if we are believers in our time. The Father's house is our safe place and it will always be because he is the everlasting Father. I think inevitably when we, uh, when we talk about Father, when we talk about God the Father, or when we talk about this aspect of God being Father of his people, it, it, it's natural to, for us to think about our own earthly fathers. And when some of us think about our, our earthly fathers, we, we might see someone who falls well short. Um, well short of the roles that we've talked about today. Uh, maybe it's because they just plain weren't there or, or they just failed to live out those roles that 
were entrusted to them. And, and others of us might, might look at our earthly fathers and see someone who didn't do it perfectly, but, but did a pretty good job. But even if that's the case, we know that, that they can't carry out that role forever for no other reason than, than their time to pass away will come if it hasn't already. So whatever kind of earthly father we did or didn't have in this life, what we truly need is this everlasting father that Isaiah talks about. We need one who will perfectly guide us and perfectly provide for us and, and perfectly protect us. And Isaiah says to us, to those of us in that place with that need, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And his name shall be called Everlasting Father because he does all of those things. He does them perfectly and he does them eternally. And I wanted to end this morning by, by having us reflect on that parable of the prodigal son that, uh, that Jacob read for us earlier in the service. The ways in which the father in that story is portrayed are so moving. So moving. I mean, the, the father loves his younger son so much. And he's so confident that that son's not going to find anything outside of the father's house than is better than what is inside, that, that he allows his son to go find, find out for himself. And, and when the son comes to his senses, he reflects upon his father and the wonderful ways in which his father cares for all who were within that father's house. And, and what does the son say in that parable, right? Even, even the servants are cared for. I mean, we see the extent to which the father cares for those in his household. And then when the, the younger son approaches, comes back to the father's house, he's welcomed back by, the, by his father who, who saw him a long way off. And then when the older son approaches the father's house and hesitates to go in, the father comes out to him and reiterates his love for him. If there's anything within you which is drawn to that incredible father in that story, in that parable, know to whom that parable points. Because that's just a made-up story. It's a good one. <laughs> but that's just a story that Jesus told to shine a light on the everlasting Father, to shine a light on himself. Even the incredible picture of the Father in that parable is just a dim portrayal of the everlasting Father. And so we can know that God's arms are open, that he's prepared to welcome us back into his house and whether you've been gone for 10 minutes because you were lured away by temptation or, or you've been gone 10 years for the same reasons, come back to that everlasting Father. Come back into his house and find rest there. Find guidance and provision 
and protection because that's the only place that it can be found. It's open to us, and it's open to us because of this son who was born so long ago. So would you stand with me? Let's come before God this morning and, and praise him and worship him for being that father that we so desperately need. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that that you have created this place where we can go, where we can be in your protection and provision, where you are providing for us. God, and we thank you that you've made the way for us to be in that as well. We know that in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, we run away from that. We're, we're like that younger son, assuming that we can find what we desire somewhere else. But would you open our eyes daily, like the younger son in that story, to, to come to the realization that what we truly seek is only within your house. God, I thank you that you are that everlasting Father, that we can rest in you and trust in you eternally, that we can know that you'll never leave us, never forsake us, that your love has no end. God, I know we can't wrap our minds around that completely, but would you help us understand that more each and every day? And would you in turn drive us to share that with others as well. Because there's so many people in our world searching for what's only found in you. Would you give us those opportunities, open our eyes, give us that passion to proclaim you, to proclaim the goodness of your house to those that we see. God, as we conclude our time again, lifting our voices to you in song, doing so collectively. God, we thank you that you are our Father. We love you and we praise you. We pray in your name. Amen.